So the plan is from December to, to take the sabbatical from the December break, uh, and then we'll see where the Lord takes us from there. Uh, it's, a big, it's a lot of unknowns at the moment, but I won't bore you with all of that now. Uh, but yeah, but I'm very excited to, to preach this month. I'm actually even extra excited, <laughs> because it might be the last time. I'm giving it everything. <laughs> well, I'm actually always giving it everything. I'm giving it extra everything. Um, okay, so this month I'm going to be preaching so there are no slides. To be frank, I ran out of time. But you're all in the corporate world and have seen enough PowerPoints in your life. So just going old school, I'm going to preach. I'm going to be in John 4, verses 1 to 15. Um, I'm going to read through it. You're welcome to just listen or follow in your Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. But the sermon title for this month is... Um, Conversations through John 4, which might sound very ostentatious, but the, the John 4, which is the story of the woman at the well, which has come up a lot lately actually in our services, is a very conversational piece of scripture. Yeah. Jesus strikes up a conversation with the woman at the well, it's a bit of back and forth, then it takes a direction there, then it goes there, then it goes there. So, what I'm going to do in October is just walk through John 4 talk about a couple of things that that it points towards. Um, this is not an exegesis of everything there is to know about John 4 and every angle, but loosely speaking, this week I'm going to be talking about living water, trying to explore what that is, what that means. Um, in weeks to come, I'm going to speak through, preach through worship, and then really punching high through the new heavens and the new earth, heaven, try to bring some clarity to that. Um, so today we're going to be speaking about the living water. Um, before I do that, I'm going to pray very quickly for us. Father, we bring ourselves to you this morning in our hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would still and calm our minds and our hearts. And may we receive wisdom and knowledge of you, God. Just, just know that the knowledge of God is not knowledge gained by learning, but it's knowledge given, Lord. You give us knowledge of yourself, of who you are. I pray for that this morning, that our hearts and minds will be at rest and calm. In Jesus' name. Alright, John 4. I'm just going to read through verses 1 to 15, and then I'm going to Take it section by section. So, as I said, welcome to follow in the ESV or your own translation or just to listen. Now, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, 
you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come in to draw water. Okay, it seems like Jesus and the woman are speaking past each other somewhat. Um, but we're going to unpack that. We're going to unpack that quickly. But what we see here, I'm just going to go through a couple of interesting parts that we see here. When it says that um, Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John, and in brackets John clarifies as he does throughout the passage, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. It says Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples. He was forming disciples. Yet it says it wasn't Jesus himself that he was baptizing, but it was his disciples. But those formed by Jesus, and in his name, it was as though Jesus had done it. Um, but it says, Jesus then finds out that the Pharisees are hearing that he's outstripping John in his ministry. John's ministry is sort of fading into the background and Jesus' ministry is, is taking off. Jesus hears that the Pharisees see it like that. And then it says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Why did he leave? Now, one reason I would have had a slideshow was to show you a map. Okay, but imagine at the bottom here is Jerusalem and Judea. At the top is Galilee and Nazareth. In the middle is Samaria. They're roughly about 40, it's roughly about 40 k to Samaria and then another 50 to Nazareth. Um, Jesus' ministry started in Galilee. That's where yeah, he called some of his first disciples and, and that's where the, he turned water into wine at the beginning at Canaan. He was from nearby and his family and friends were there and he started his ministry there. Then, at one point he went down to Jerusalem. This is where things started to heat up. This is where Jesus cleansed the temple um, and really got up the Pharisees' noses. It was his first confrontation with him. It's also where he spoke to Nicodemus. Um, and already then, having come from Galilee down to Jerusalem, uh, cleansed the temple, not won any favor of the Pharisees, he and the disciples retreated to the Judean countryside to, to carry on the ministry and baptizing people there. John was also baptizing nearby. Now Jesus, when he sees that the Pharisees are, are, are out for him um, and have, have already, uh, he's not in good, in, on good terms with them, it says he departs for Galilee again. Um, and for Jesus, his time had not yet come. His, it was still very early in his ministry. His disciples were still very, very young as well. So Jesus, instead of exposing them to the heat of the Pharisees and having them all fall apart and be taken out by the Pharisees. He says, okay, let's go away for a while. Let's go back up to Galilee. There's work for us there. It's much friendlier over there. We'll keep going. Now, it might seem odd to us that, that Jesus would do that, but it, it echoes these words that he said elsewhere in Luke. And it says, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. Matthew Henry puts it like this. He says, we are not called to suffer, while we may avoid it without sin, and therefore we may change our place. God can bring much fruit from suffering, and many lessons in life are only learned through suffering, but God is gracious and gentle. In this case, the disciples were just about nowhere still. Um, and Jesus knew his time to come. So that's why they departed again to Galilee. 
But to get to Galilee, there were two ways. There was a quick way through Samaria, and there was a long way that involved going from Jerusalem to cross the Jordan, to walk around on the eastern side, and then go up to Galilee. So Samaria was sort of, you can imagine, mountains on the one side, sort of less little hills on the other side. It was the um, quickest way, but Scripture says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now there are a couple of things there. So the Scriptures, that phrase had to, elsewhere in Scripture, has a sense of divine unction. Jesus had a sense of something to do in Samaria, 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 um, and he had to go there. But it was also the shortest route. The strict Jews did not pass through. Because they considered them to be perpetually unclean. So the strict Jews would walk across the river, go up on the eastern side, go back top, walk about 14 extra kilometers just to avoid the Samaritans. Um, and we know from Jesus' life that he was not extremely bothered with the Jews' laws and about religious defilement. <laughs> In fact, that was often their reason for hating him. <clears throat> so, anyway, Jesus goes through to Samaria. So, who were the Samaritans? Um, just a little bit of history. So the Samaritans were a racially mixed group. They were partly Jewish and partly Gentile in their ancestry. Um, they featured quite prominently in the scriptures. We had the good Samaritans, right? He was the guy who actually went to help the guy and got and beaten up next to the road. A hero of scripture was a Samaritan. Um, there was a Samaritan leper who got cleansed. Jesus cleansed ten lepers. Nine of them lepers turned around to him and said, thank you. thank you. The Samaritan came back praising God for the life of us. Thank you. One time Jesus was healing someone and delivering them. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. The Pharisees and the Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans. So much so that they would not walk through their town, but rather would walk 40 to 50 kilometers extra. The history of that is that Jews actually lived in Samaria in the Old Testament. But when there was exile, all of them got taken out. Then the king of Assyria sent people from Babylon and all these other nations, Skuta, Avua, Amak, Sephavim, all these places to go and populate Samaria. So the king had, con had conquered Samaria, taken the Jews out, but they populated with people from all over the world. And this is an interesting story in 1 Kings 17. It says, when they came there, they did not know the laws of the God of the land, as our scripture puts it, and lions started attacking them and taking them out. And then they said, how they made sense of it was, there's a God of this land that we don't know. And that's why bad things are happening to us. We're obviously transgressing some laws of the land. So the king of Assyria takes one of the Jews that had taken out and put into exile and actually sends him back to go teach the people the law of the God of the land, so to speak. <coughs> and it says there, and he went there teaching the people how they should fear the Lord. But all these nations still made gods of their own. So they feared the Lord on the one hand, but they also served their own gods, served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children. So the Samaritans were a very mixed crowd. To the Jews, this was reprehensible. This was unclean, impure, the worst of the worst. They were trying to make it, the Samaritans, had mixtures of Babylonian religion with Judaism. And then they also had their own version of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, books of the Bible. They had their own temple, as we'll get to later, where they worshipped. Uh, their own rendering of the Israelite history. But there was lots of enmity and war between the Jews and Samaritans. 
why it's such a, such the Pharisees just don't like it when the Samaritans are the Okay, to the religiously pure, they were the worst. So then he came to a town of Samaria called Sychon, in the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This was quite a sacred site. So Joseph, when he died in Egypt, he asked that the Israelites would bring his bones up um, back to Israel to be buried there. So this field is where Joseph, near to where Joseph was buried. So it's near a sacred site. For the Jews, but it just happens to sit in Samaria, which is also probably not nice for them. Um, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Wearied as he was, Jesus got tired. Jesus was was weary. Scripture, Hebrews two verse seventeen says. He, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers and sisters, that's us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus was made like us in every way. He was a true man. In this instance, we can actually see he was a poor man as well. Maybe if he was rich, he might have ridden around on a horse or a chariot or something, but he walked everywhere like the poor people did. He was a poor man. We see even here that he was weaker than the others, he had to sit and rest at the well while the disciples went into town. So, maybe Peter and all the other guys were much better than him, much stronger than him. And they all went to town where he had to rest. And I think this is important for us to just dwell on for a moment. Um, we have to lose the notion of Jesus being the best looking, strongest, most able, the best carpenter, the best at everything. <laughs> sort of meek and humble alpha male. Like, he's the best, but he's just really humble. That is not Jesus. Okay. Uh, we have that perception. And often that affects our relationship with him, doesn't it? Yeah. We feel like, oh, I'm just so, I'm so ashamed of my weakness. Lord. But he, he was made like us in every way. He had weakness. He experienced hunger, thirst, tiredness, loneliness. And we would do well to meditate on his humanity so that we may have a deeper sense of how he sympathizes and identifies with our own frailty. Do we see that? Jesus, Jesus was... As I said, there was nothing in his appearance that would make us want him. You know, despite all the children's Bible pictures and all the movies that have been made where he's just got this vibe. <laughs> the best and the strongest and, and everything. He could have been short, weak, thin framed, all of that. And we, and we have to grasp this. We have to imagine Jesus like this when he was on earth in bodily form. Because, as I said earlier, it's our relationship with him. Sometimes the sense of failure that many of us carry around. When we don't measure up to our own ambitions, our own vain conceptions of, of what we should be like, what we should be capable of, 
That sense of failure that we carry about is not driven by Jesus. You can be driven by a performance culture, your own vanity, someone else's expectation of you, or any number of things, but it's not driven by Him. He was made weak like us, and He understands our weakness. How much of our shame and self-loathing is often self-inflicted because we really expect it more of ourselves. It's not that we have low self-esteem, but possibly that we esteem ourselves too highly. You know, I really should have been X by now. I really should have achieved this level of something by now. I really should have been here in my work. I've been a Christian for 12 years. I really should have been this by now. And the subtlety is, is often we we have a high estimation of what we should be. And we think God is driving that. Jesus is like embarrassed. So weak. Okay? Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is absolutely not about you, by the power of God, becoming the best or excelling at everything that you do. God will often do that in your life, but it's, it's, it's not the goal of Christianity for you to be the highest at your work necessarily. You might stay in middle management or no management forever. That's fine, okay? It's not a Christian failure. It's not a failure in your walk. You might not be as sharp as the guy next to you. That's 100% fine. It's actually highly possible that you could even run faster or sing better than Jesus could. Do a lot of other things better, so to speak, than him. Does this make you more valuable or important to him? Of course not. He was beset with weakness, just like you, just like me. And many of the hang-ups that we have about ourselves are because we have a limited body and mind as a human. And not because we are a woeful sinner that's a disappointment to God. When we behold the frail, the weakness or the humanity of Jesus, I want us to see the mercy, the love, the acceptance and the enjoyment of you from God. Through the fully human nature that Jesus took on in all of its weakness and limitations. Okay, so Jesus, weary as he was, had to take a rest. If you're tired, it's not because you're weak. Maybe you just need a rest. It's okay. So he was sitting beside the well, and it was the sixth hour, which is noon. <clears throat> that's the hot time of the day. The women of the cities usually used to go out in the morning or in the evening to collect water. That's when they all go out and do it. This is about noon, the hottest time of the day, when the woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Why is this? As we know from the story later on, it's revealed that she's actually yeah, she's she's had a couple of husbands. She's not in a right relationship with this man that she's with now. She was an outcast among the Samaritans. Okay, that's quite bad, especially from a Jewish perspective. Could there be anything? Samaritans are really bad, but this woman was an adulteress as well. And so even amongst the Samaritans, she carried a big sense of shame. Um, and so she did things alone. She went to draw water where no one else would be there. We must understand this to understand why it's so shocking and why this woman is taken aback by Jesus who says, give me a drink. He was alone there. As it says his disciples went to buy food. The Samaritan woman, flabbergasted, said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John clarifies for us again, in case we're in any doubt. The Jews have no dealings with Samaria. 
Jews did not go near to Samaritans. They didn't go through their town even because they would be made unclean. Here is Jesus as a Jew talking first of all to a woman who is also an outcast among the Samaritans. It was an astonishing break from culture and tradition. This woman is as surprised and perplexed as any bystanding Jew might have been. One of some of the other things we see here is that Jesus asks. This was all doubly surprising to the woman. Um, Matthew Henry is one of, he's written a long commentary way back in the 1600s as one of the primary resources. He says, it was the pride of Jews to endure any hardship rather than be beholden or dependent upon a Samaritan. Yet Jesus acknowledges his thirst and asks a Samaritan for a drink. And we can see why the good Samaritan hero is such an affront to the Pharisees so important for understanding of the gospel. That the gospel is not for the strong and the able and the, the guys who are just flying high with the colors that comes alongside to lift your wings and make you soar even higher. The gospel is for everyone, it is for everyone. At least for people like that. Okay. And lots of us like that. Uh, it's for, for everyone. It's for the outcasts and the ashamed and the poor. And now we're getting to this confusing back and forth between the woman and Jesus. She can't believe he's asked for a drink. Jesus, instead of talking about custom and all of these things, as he does, he asks another question. He says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, if you knew, he's starting to hint to the woman that there's something more to him than meets her eye. She just knows him as a Jew. Later on, we realize Oh my word, this is the Messiah. Jesus is starting to unfold that to her. It's just hinting to her that she might discover it. <clears throat> the gift of God. What is the gift of God? In one way, Jesus is God's gift to man for salvation. But I believe in this passage, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit as God's gift to man for eternal life. He says, if he knew the gift of God, and he goes on as he later says, Whoever drinks the water that I will give him, I will give him, I will give him. Jesus is talking about himself giving a gift. So the gift is the Holy Spirit. The living water is the Holy Spirit. Gift of God equals living water equals Holy Spirit. Okay, Jesus is talking about the living water, not about himself. So what is living water? This is where I've got stuck for a long time. Because we read this living water, and then you're satisfied, never thirst again. Sometimes thought of the living water as like just a vague sense of blessedness. Just kind of satisfied in God, sort of spiritual serenity that you have. Living water, I never thirst. But Jesus is actually being very real and very plain here. The living water is the Holy Spirit. Okay? And when we say the Holy Spirit, person of the Holy Spirit. don't have time now to unpack the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but He is unsearchable and we could talk for days and years about Him, but there are three persons to the Trinity, right? God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What I really want, my hope for this morning is that we can see the Spirit clearly. Holy Spirit clearly and afresh. Because often we live like God the Father, we can see a clear thing there because we hear him speaking through the Old Testament and Jesus, yeah, we could 
is the account of who he is. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, sort of like, I don't know, it's just a mysterious force, divine force, that sometimes comes into play uh, when we need miracles. And sometimes it comes upon someone and something strange or fantastical happens. Okay, but the Holy Spirit is a, is a, is a person, not, not a human, but He's a person as much as the Son and the Father. Okay? God said in the beginning, let us make man in our image. Let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make man in our image. So the Holy Spirit has the same characteristics of that we can see in Jesus. Right? Emotion. Um, all of those things. He's not... I'm going to stumble over my words here. It's hard to explain, <laughs> explain it, but I, I, I want us to move away from the notion that He's vague. That He's sometimes there and we don't know what He's doing. And, and yeah, we know about Jesus and we know about the Father, but the Holy Spirit is just a bit vague to us. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be fair, living water can also mean fresh spring water. So that is possibly why the Samaritan woman misunderstands Jesus and says, this well is too deep. You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get this fresh spring water? Jesus tries again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks of the water that I will give you will never be thirsty again. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, and then the woman still says, give me this water so that I won't have to come here and draw water. She still doesn't seem to get it. I'm still never sure whether she actually ever gives Jesus some water to drink. <laughs> But in John 7, 37 to 39, in the temple, Jesus says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay? We have that phrase again, living water. And this John clarifies. Now, this, about the living water, he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The living water is not a general sense of good religious well-being. It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity dwelling within the believer. To clarify this, we see this in Jeremiah 2 verse 13 where God is talking to the people and He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 17 verse 13, He says, The Lord, the fountain living water. So even in the Old Testament, God is the living water. Okay? It's, he, but He expresses that aspect of His being through the Holy Spirit. So the person of the Holy Spirit is the living water. Living water equals Holy Spirit. Living water equals Holy Spirit. Also in the Old Testament, we've got pictures in Ezekiel, which is also quite straightforward to understand. But you have Pictures of water, living water flowing from the temple, and later on a picture of what happens. That water flows down the stream, and then the trees flourish, and, and there's a fish, and all the rest. But it's a beautiful picture of living water. <clears throat> Jesus says, When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, the water that I give you is the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about to his disciples in John 15. He says, I must go away, but I will send you another help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. And you'll never be thirsty again. 
but you'll have a spring of water in your heart. But what about this? I mean, who here as a Christian has sometimes felt dry? Super saints in the <laughs> <laughs> And that's why I've often misunderstood this passage. I'm like, maybe Lord, if I pray harder, maybe if I serve more, I'll experience this living waterish spiritual blessedness. The living water is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to repeat it a lot. Often we drive, and it's not for lack of effort or um, lack of trying, but often it's because let go of dependence upon and interaction with and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. There is no Christian life, there is no church, there is no revelation, vision, joy, peace, or freedom without the Holy Spirit. Doesn't Romans say that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit? You cannot have church without the Holy Spirit. You cannot have a walk with God without the living water living in you. It dries up and it dies. Let us make man in our image. The Holy Spirit is a person in the same way that the Father and the Son are divine persons. And here's something interesting that I came upon. Let me just say the doctrine of the Trinity is not spelled out in any chapter or verse. Okay, but it is heavily implied throughout Scripture. Okay, there isn't a chapter, this verse, this, that says this is how it works. Um, as a standalone thing, but it's implied throughout Scripture. What's also implied throughout Scripture is the nature of this relationship. They are three in one, one in three, but... Who does what? Okay, so I came upon this and, and someone showed it to me and it rings true when I think about scripture. I don't have time for a hundred verses to really exegete it at this point. But the relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You've got the Father. He's got authorship or planning power. He, he wills it. The Son has arranging or executive power. Administrate. The Holy Spirit has the power to complete it and bring it into effect. That which the Father has willed and initiated, Jesus administrates and then the Spirit manifests. Okay, the Spirit is God and, and he's, he's generative. He, he creates creative power, all the same power as the Father and the Son, and that's His role. One way of looking at it was if you had to build a house, the Father would be the architect. He maps it out. What's, what it should be. The Son is the foreman. He, he administers the building. The Holy Spirit is the builders. The workers. Okay. Some of you guys might think I'm up to something funny. Here. But, uh, it's there. Go look for it. You see an example of this. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the finger of God. Um, Jesus is casting out demons and Pharisees say, you're doing it by demon. Um, and he says, okay, I don't remember the whole story, but he says, but if by the finger of God I cast out demons, and elsewhere that same account is translated, the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We see in creation that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the chaos, waiting for the Father to initiate. So the Father wills the creation, the Son, who is the Word of God, as John says, the Son says, let there be light, and then the Holy Spirit is, the, is the part of the Godhead that actually brings the light. So the Son administered the Father's will, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit created that which was spoken. The Holy Spirit is actually the one who manifests all the creation, or enacts the Father's creative 
Messiah. How amazing then that he comes to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit humbled himself by agreeing with the Father and the Son to come and make, take up his residence in us. Okay, okay, this is crucial for the Christian life. Because it's, it's, it's not about aspiring to be something that sometimes God helps you, and sometimes He doesn't, and sometimes you're ashamed, and sometimes you feel good. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you with all that generative power to act out the will of the Father in you. It's God's will for you, your sanctification. The Holy Spirit is in you to bring that about. Okay, so we dry up, not for lack of effort, but for lack of dependence, possibly. Lack of understanding that, that, how much we actually rely on the Spirit. I think sometimes we have to think of, you know, scriptures about denying yourself, or death to yourself, or whatever. We maybe have to primarily think of that as my desires, my desire to do this, or that I must die to that, you know. But really what scripture talks about, and I think the bigger component, is denial of yourself to bring about anything good of yourself. Denial of your fleshly nature, your own carnal will to be something for God and, and make yourself right for God, not abandon that. Your flesh has no power to bring about spiritual freedom. Deny it. Forget about it. Holy Spirit will bring it about. Okay? When you wake up in the morning and think you already want to walk in love today, you deny your flesh and you say, Flesh, I, I Matthew, have no love of my own to give. I deny it and I say, Holy Spirit. Fill me with heavenly love. Enable the love of the Father through me. Okay, so in that moment, it's about denying myself. I haven't even spoken about my desires to do this or that. It, it's denying the power of the flesh. And relying on the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit lives in you with the creative and generative power. Yielding to Him, your heart will be satisfied and eternal life will be waiting up. You must wait on Him, depend on Him, rely on Him, be quiet before Him, trust Him. He's, he's God, he's, he's the same as Jesus and the Father, but He's in you. Jesus is in heaven, right? Jesus has ascended. The disciples watched him go up in his body to heaven. Uh, try and unpack this in week three, what that means for us. Um, but Jesus is there, and that's why I said to his disciples, it's better for you that I go away. I'm going to send my spirit. Jesus was only in one place at one time. He was just around Galilee. But he said, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to send the other person of the Godhead. He's going to come, and he's going to love him. And he's, he's, he's as powerful as we Powerful as the Father. We are one and the same. Three in one, one in three. Okay. Don't lose me here, but that's that's the beauty of, of creation and of salvation. <coughs> so that's that for this morning. Um, it was just allow some time for prayer at the end, but I, well, I'll, I'll pray for us and, and then close the service. But I think maybe. I'll just allow some time for you to be quiet before God. No um, deal, we'll just play a little bit of, of music in the background, but I want to leave some space for you to meditate on what you just heard, respond to God if you want, wait on Him, 
you want, uh, but let's not just rush out and do the next thing. Um, if you would like any prayer, personal prayer, you're welcome to come to the front. I'm here, Jacques, and small computers here, and we can pray for you. Any prayer at all. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your commitment to our salvation, Lord, that you committed to seeing us through. You are committed to making us more like your Son, to delivering us from the weakness and the bondage of the flesh and of sin and all those things that weigh us down, Father. And I just thank you for relief and release this morning as well. Even as we behold you, Jesus, you are our faithful high priest. I thank you that when we fail, we needn't be ashamed to come before you. You were made like us in every way so that you could sympathize with us and empathize with us and understand our weakness. Thank you that, that you say, come. Come. And I thank you, Father, this morning that we put off burdens that are self-imposed or imposed by others. Burdens of performance, burdens of... We really should be ex by now. And many of us, Father, if we're honest with ourselves, carry around a sense of failure or a sense of shame. Because we haven't measured up to that picture. And we think you created that picture. When as a matter of fact, you've got nothing to do with that picture. You, you don't fit that picture at all. We've made it. Or someone else has imposed it on us. Or, or we just have really vain conceptions of, of what we should be. We've come from this and we should be this. God, we surrender that this morning. We surrender that and say, Father, our confidence before you is not our own effort. Our trust is your presence in us. Living water, you live in us and dwell up in us that there's a spring of water flowing out of us. Thank you that the means by which we are a blessing to the world around us has nothing to do with how hard we try, but everything to do with how much we yield to you to be conduits of what you want to do, what you want to create, what you want to renew and regenerate. So Father, we bring our hearts to you this morning and I really just pray that you would touch each one's heart, Father. Some of these things are mysterious and hard for us to grapple with intellectually, but just pray, Father, that you would stir faith in our hearts this morning to respond to you in whatever way. You are drawing us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I said I'm going to allow, you know, this is going to play, and we're just going to allow some time for quietness and for prayer as well, after which I will pray for us and close this service.